0: Welcome to Becoming Referrable, the podcast that shows you how to become the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Steve Wershing, and on this episode, we talk with Josh Patrick, founding principal of Stage 2 Planning Partners and the man behind AskJoshPatrick.com. Josh has something of a distinction among financial planning practitioners in that he's run other businesses in different industries before he came to financial advice. We have a great conversation about what it means to run a successful financial advisory business. We talk about things like plans versus planning. We talk about how to understand where the real value lies in your business. We talk about the fact that Josh is a nicheaholic and why it's important to know who you're meant to serve. We talk about branding individual advisors versus branding your advisory firm, why it's important to become irrelevant in your firm, and the five things you need to do to have a sustainable business. It's a great conversation with a lot of tips on how to run a more successful advisory business. So without further ado, here's Josh Patrick. So Josh, welcome to the show. We're we're, we're tremendously pleased to have you here.
1: Oh, thanks. I'm thrilled to be with you folks today.
0: Now, Um, you know, Josh, part of what's interesting about you is that uh, is your background and that that financial services was not your first career. And and in fact, even now you've got a career that's sort of separate from that. Can you sort of tell us how you got here?
1: Sure. Uh, I (laughs) was going to college, thought I was going to be a lawyer. And, uh, my senior year, I actually started looking at what lawyers really do in life and said, you know, Uh, I don't think I'd be really happy having to defend guilty people. (laughs) So (laughs) I I thought that that was probably a bad uh, choice for me. And I was going to Boston University at that time, had a bunch of job offers at BU. And I also had a chance to join the family business. And like many people who join family businesses, it was the path of least resistance. And that's what I ended up doing. So for my first 20 years in business, I uh, joined the family business, bought part of it from my father, built that up, ended up buying his piece of the business back about 15 years later, and after 20 years, I figured out that the vending business was one of the two or three worst industries in the United States. (laughs) Congratulations on choosing that. Yeah, right. Nice. Nice. That was a a great choice. And, uh, I decided it was probably time to sell. And luckily I found a buyer for us. And after I sold, I said, okay, well, there's one or three things I can do. I could go into the life insurance business cause I like consultative selling. And uh, my experience with our life insurance agents was they did a really good job of that. I could have opened a software company because I was really kind of a tech savvy guy and I liked it, but I didn't know how to program. I didn't want to learn. Or I could have done public speaking because I had been doing a lot of that at that point at the end of my vending career. Uh, But again, I didn't want to be on the road 100 days a year. So I said, well, life insurance sounds good. I like it. Let's give it a shot. I started working for a large life insurance company. And lo and behold, I found out that when you work for a life insurance company, they want you to sell life insurance. How about that? Who would have thought? Yeah, Yeah, but my natural market was private business owners. And when you're working with private business owners, life insurance is important, but it doesn't solve even 3% of the issues they had. So I left the life insurance company, went into the, opened my own wealth management firm, joined uh, Partners Financial, which was an insurance producer group. They had just started a broker-dealer, which became NFP Securities, is now Kestra. Uh, Did that for 20 years, and then last fall we decided it was time for us to leave the commission world, move into the fee-only world, and we formed our own RIA. And while I've been doing this, I also have started this sister company called Ask Josh Patrick, where I do coaching, mentoring for private business owners on how to create a sustainable business. So I sort of have two tracks that I run on, um, and I spend a lot of time in the sustainable business world of how you create an economically and personally sustainable business, and we can get are into those... the five things that you need to do if you want to, but um, that's where I, how I got to where I am.
2: I'd lo- I'd love to get those five things for sure. I'd, I'd, but I was just wondering that how connected are those two businesses, or are they like? Do you find yourself doing a lot of consulting and coaching for your business owner clients who are part of the wealth management firm?
1: No. Um, As a matter of fact, I I sort of separate that. Mm -hmm. We charge a pretty good fee for the consulting side of the business. And the reason we charge a good fee is because it's completely optional whether people choose me as an investment manager. And the folks who have been using me on that side of the world uh, pretty much don't want to use me as an investment manager. They just want completely independent advice. And the only way they believe they get that is by paying me a fee.
0: And, and is that, is that uh, financial advice or do you mean the management co- consulting and coaching type stuff?
1: Uh, yes, both. Okay. <clears throat>
0: so is it, is it common that the, the, the business owners that you mentor and coach in terms of developing their business also utilize you for a financial plan?
1: Um, you know, I have a funny feeling. I mean, you, I, Steve, I don't know if I've talked with you about this, about financial plans. Um, I hate a financial plan. I think they're a waste of time. I love financial planning. So the answer to your question, they used me for financial planning, I have never given any of them a financial plan.
0: Oh, I see, okay. And
1: we can get into this. I actually have an issue with planning versus plans in general.
2: Yeah, it would I, be interesting to get your take on that.
1: Um, well, it, very simply is I think planning, which is a fluid activity, is a really important activity. And it's something we need to be doing our entire business career, or actually just life as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> the problem with doing a plan is that you get this big, long document and you think you're done. You know, the, the first place I found this was in the exit planning world. I spent a lot of time working with the Business Enterprise Institute and was one of the early guys in, on that side of the world. Uh, and what happened is is that you would put together these 25, 30, 40-page exit plans, they'd sit on a shelf and nothing happened. And the, the real problem with that is whatever we wrote down the plan was wrong and would likely have to be completely revised within three to four years. So instead of writing a really long plan, what I've been doing is working uh, what I call client-facing stuff, where we do the planning process with a client and a client-facing tool. You know, we use uh, Money Guide Pro, and we're, we're testing out Advisor right now on the financial planning side. And I use a tool called Core Value on the business planning side and another tool, which is called AVI for values work. And we do that with the client looking at the same computer screen, helping us make adjustments as we go along. I think it's crucially important that we honor our clients as experts in their lives and experts at what they want to do. And in my opinion, for me to sit along and write this plan and then present it for somebody is presumptuous because the client hasn't been part of the solution. I'm being, you know, I, I, yeah, I am an expert at what I do, but my clients have expertise and we need to work in a collaborative basis. And, you know, I've, very involved in the Purposeful Planning Institute, which is John A. Warnick's thing. And the problem with collaboration is we don't start with our clients. We come in saying, here's what you need to do. Well, instead, doesn't it make more sense to ask our clients what's important for them and dig down the whys and then go back and revisit that what to make sure it's the right thing to be doing?
0: well so, so let me go back a little bit and 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 learn more about the genesis of this so <clears throat> um, you know you can you can get on you know you can get onto a computer and 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 work collaboratively collaboratively with a client and you know use their input to adjust you know projections and those kinds of things because now we have that kind of technology but you've been doing this for a while and so you you were doing this before we had those online collaborative tools. How did you take that approach before we had a money guide pro or an advisor or anything like that?
1: Well, I I actually have a tool I call the four boxes of financial independence, which is a yellow pad financial planning tool, which I invented for business owners. And the reason I invented this was most business owners think their business is going to get them to retirement by itself. And the truth is for less than one-tenth of 1% of the businesses in this country, that's true. So I needed a way to sort of knock some sense into the heads of the private business owners I work with and say, hey, you need investment real estate. You need a qualified plan. You don't need this stuff for diversification, although you do what you really need it for. If you don't do it, you're never going to be able to stop running your business. Um, there's a thing I call, which I I I think I invented the term. I'm not sure, but it's called perma-five. And perma-five is when you go to a business owner, anybody for that matter, and you say when you want to do something, and they'll say five years from now. And you go back two <laughs> years from now, and again, I'm it's only five laughing years. because it's true, Josh. It is. <laughs> it's absolutely true. And I needed a way to get perma-five out of the conversation. Because what I learned is when someone says five years out, that's always a, a a key for me that they know the person I'm talking to knows they need to do something. They just don't know what it is. And they believe whatever it is, is going to magically appear and reveal itself in the next five years. So uh, I would just bring out my legal pad and draw four boxes on it. And box one would be the business. Box two is qualified plans. Box three is investment real estate they probably own. And box four was other investments. And I'd say, okay, let's take a look at all these assets and see what they actually produce on income when you start working. And it would generally prove to the business owner they need to do something if they ever wanted to retire. So, you know, financial planning does not have to be complicated. You know, the problem with smart people is that we take simple things and we make them way more complicated than they need than they need to be.
0: Well, and to some extent, that's I, I, su- I suppose because you know we want to have something that that we feel justifies paying for our expertise, right? We we need we feel like we have to have something impressive, you know, if we're going to ask people for big fees. When in reality, you know, what what you're doing with people, which is bringing your expertise to the table, is really where the value is generated,
1: right? Yeah. Look, it's not the written document that people value. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's a feature. It's not a benefit. Exactly. And it's a feature most people don't even care about. I mean, I I remember when I first started doing uh, strategic planning in my company. My first strategic business plan was 60 pages long. Would you like to know how many people read the plan? (laughs) (laughs) Did you? Yeah, right. No, including you? Did, including yeah, right. me. Zero. Including <laughs> me. <laughs> I wrote it, went up on the shelf, and and there, right, sure. and there it is. My last year in business, would you like to know how long our strategic plan was? <laughs> page?
0: Go yeah, page? Yeah, page. It was four pages. Okay. Oh,
1: wow. and, and actually, it became the genesis of a thing we call four-tiered budgeting, where if you look at four things, you know what you need to do for your next year you don't again let's take the complicated stuff and simplify it let's not take the simple stuff and complicate it
2: i love it
0: so, so so we you know we um we were talking about um you know we we want to eventually get around to you know how does how does an advisor get their clients talking about them and, and spreading the word to other folks i think one of the messages it sounds like is that you know Understand where the value actually comes from, and what you're, what you're doing, and that it's not selling financial planning by the pound, but it's um, you know being uh, being cognizant of the client's expertise in their own life, and 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 bringing your expertise to helping them sort through that stuff. Is that right?
1: Yes. And, and Steve, you know that I'm a nicheaholic. Or I, I refer to myself right. as a nicheaholic
0: yep. a lot. That's what I was going to get to next. Yep.
1: And what that really comes from is I have deep expertise in what makes a private business successful. I have no expertise in working with a widow who has just lost her husband. So I need to be able to say no to the widow and say yes to the private business owner because I can help a private business owner with very, very little effort on my side. I know enough where I've dealt with at least 500 businesses in my career. And as a result, there's themes that run through this stuff. And by looking at these themes, it's relatively easy for me to take a look at a private business and say, if you do this, this, and this, here's your results you're gonna get because I've done it a zillion times already. I can't do that with a widow. I would not be serving a widow nearly as well as I serve a private business owner. You know, as my buddy Michael Port likes to say, it's really important to know who we're meant to serve. And... You can only do that by becoming a nicheaholic. And then, so,
0: so let's dig into that a little bit because it seems like that would be a really good litmus test for whether or not you've got it right. You know, the ability to say, look, I, I have a deep expertise in, and then fill in the blank. And, and, and then, what we should do is, is sort of build some, some um, you know, bumpers around that. That if, if you say, I have a deep expertise in asset allocation or financial planning, you're really not saying anything. But you need to be able to say something germane to the client that I have a deep expertise in and that would both, you know, be persuasive to the client and also would help you focus on the right thing, right?
1: Yes. And we also have to realize as an industry is say if you have a deep expertise in asset allocation, you're going to be commoditized out of the business. Right. Yeah. Because <clears throat> robo advisors, you know, there's lots of ways that, Artificial intelligence is going to make that part of our business gone. It's not an oh, if, it's a when. And if we don't have something that the client really values, that artificial intelligence isn't going to be helped with, we're probably going to have a difficult time uh, maintaining our position in the industry. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know
2: I I find interesting in the way that you phrase this which I haven't necessarily heard before we all not a lot of advisors will talk about a niche they serve or expertise they have not a majority but but many but it's almost as if you're equally confident that you're not the person for other niche markets and and that you know i don't know if you said that as intentionally as i heard it but but it's about being able with confidence to say i'm just not the right person for everybody else and therefore it's in it's frankly in the best interest of that person that they find someone who is an expert in that is that is that fair
1: absolutely and and there's two pieces there that that you hit on one is uh, the word no And the other is the principle of behavioral economics, which is loss aversion. Meaning that, uh, let's talk about no first because it's actually a word I wish people would use a lot more in life. If you don't learn to say no, you can't say yes. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And let me explain that for a second because it sounds sort of silly. If you can't say no to the wrong people, you're not going to have the time or capacity to say yes to the right person. And when you're saying no to the wrong person, you are spending an incredible amount of time and effort trying to make that person happy, and you're never likely to do that. But when you're saying yes to the right person, it's easy. You don't have to work very hard and I'm an incredibly lazy person, and I just don't Uh, want to work that hard. So I want to only work with people who I can actually do something useful for. Uh, And as a result, I'm able to spend time learning even more so I become even more valuable for the people who I'm meant to serve, which are private business owners that have between 5 and 200 employees. In the blue-collar world,
0: oh, and, so, and that, I, and I, so carry on. I, I, so, and I think I, I, let me sort of refine that a little bit, Josh. You know, I, I think the ability to say no, or the inability to say no, doesn't mean that you can't say yes, but it makes your yes less meaningful.
1: Because um,
0: if, if you say yes to everything, then well, then you're not really bringing anything to the table. But if if, if you if you have a very clear and specific yes. Then that yes becomes more compelling, or I may just be
1: no running no, down that's, a
0: semantic no, rabbit hole. But.
1: no, that's absolutely true. That's, that's absolutely true. I'm well, sorry,
2: maybe, Julie. You go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying maybe I can just sort of pick up on that then and and talk talk to us a bit about then um, how you are positioning the work that you do when you do come across someone, um, or how you how you position yourself to the world, I suppose, to attract exactly the right kinds of clients.
1: Uh, I am a prolific writer, podcaster, myself. I do videos. Uh, I've done a bunch of public speaking at uh, business conferences. I really have, I used to be a blogger for the New York Times. I wrote in their small business blog. I've written for Inc., I've written for Forbes, I've written for American Express, besides writing for my own places. And as a result, I'm known as a thought leader. If you do any work with me, I have a couple of audio CDs that I've put together that I give away free. One is on how to create a sustainable business, and the other is why financial planning for private business owners is crucial and needs to be the first step before you ever think about leaving your business. So I have got lots of ways for people to figure out I know what I'm talking about. My websites are pretty much authority-based. Ask Josh Patrick is definitely around how to create a sustainable business. Our purpose at Stage 2 Planning, which is our wealth management firm, is to help make our clients' lives better. You know, my expertise is private business owners. Another person here, her expertise is working with divorcees. Another one of our people here, his expertise is working with um you know, blue collar pre-retiree workers who are, you know, five or six years out through retirement. So we have different expertises, but we are very clear about what those expertises are as we're talking to people.
0: So can we, can we pull that apart for a minute? Because one of the things that I end up talking with advisors about a lot is branding and the difference between branding a firm and branding an individual practice. And so this is one of those things that a lot of firms struggle with, you know, so some, want a brand, the firm is doing something in particular, you know, having a target market and a niche that they offer that target market. And then we've got firms like yours where you've got each person who has their brand because they've got their own target and their own niche. So how do you you juggle between the individual brands and what does stage two stand for if everybody has a different focus?
1: Well, our, our purpose is to help make our clients' lives better. I mean, that's, you know... And the way we do that is through the different market segments that we serve. Um, You know, it's, and that's, Steve, that's a really good question. And it's one I continually uh, am working on. One of the things that we're playing around with right now is the world of online advertising is starting to attract people in the different market segments we serve through different uh, funnels and campaigns that we, we operate. And I'm just at the very beginning of that. I'm absolutely convinced that there's some real opportunity there. And I'm working on that. But it's not, we haven't cracked the code for it yet. That's for sure. I do think that most firms have multiple specialties they need to be talking about. You know, for example, I consult with a few other financial firms in the country and literally all of them, which are, you know, uh, ensemble practices, the firm itself can't be an ensemble because the people in the firm have different specialties. One of the firms, one of the people works with widows. Another person works with engineers. Another person works on alternative investments. And they've got some very interesting things they do. And what we're working on is helping them develop their own niches And being able to be found in the communities that they serve. Which is really important, especially in the wealth management world. I mean, frankly, most wealth management firms are locally based. And if you're known as being the person for, you know, say you're down in Blacksburg, Virginia, and you're you're especially very easily down there, could be working with faculty members at um, the university. And... You need to know everything about the faculty member's um, benefit package, how they work, what their thought process is, all the stuff that goes in there. Then you become an expert, and you're known in that community. Another one of our, our clients is out in the Portland area, and one of the people there has become an expert on Intel. She knows everything about Intel engineers. She even helps them figure out when it's time for them to leave Intel and move to another place. Because frankly, if you're in that world, what's the most valuable asset you have? Your ability to earn money. And by the way, that's something I think in the wealth management world, for a huge amount of people that we serve, we don't pay any attention to because we don't make money on it. Man, it's a big mistake. So-
0: so I <clears throat> I want to challenge you on this a little bit, Josh, because it seems like if if you're if you're essentially working on personal branding, you know, so that if you have a multi-practitioner firm, you've got you know multiple brands going on because you know you're telling the practitioners that they should become known as something. First, it it seems like it might dilute the potential branding power of the firm because then you know the firm stands for multiple things one for each of the practitioners in it, but it also seems like you're really setting yourself up for a succession issue because now, you know, if, 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 if if I believe ask Josh Patrick is the place I need to go to, to help me manage my small business and, and, and learn better how to be a a businessman. And then you at some point want to retire. Well, once Josh Patrick is out of the picture, then ask Josh Patrick, the the value of that brand kind of goes away. Doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And and, well, there's, there's a couple points there. One is, yes, it is a difficult thing to do, and you have to sort of brand your firm on, um, you know, I'm not sure that branding a firm makes as much sense as branding an individual. And yes, it does cause a challenge for succession. Um, at the same time, when I look at the way wealth management businesses are transferred It is the most ridiculous methodology I have ever seen from any business transfer in any industry, and I have looked at hundreds of industries over the years. Our industry sells businesses for 35% down in cash and 65% in owner financing, and a lot of the time, and I've written about this a lot, my first three posts for the New York Times was the worst business transition I ever saw. And it was basically done by that. And this industry thinks that's a good way to sell a business. A much better way to go is what I what I think for most wealth management firms. And this is for the firms that have probably less than $300, $400, $500 million in assets. And that's the vast majority of the industry is to do what I call the wind down. And a wind down is where you say, I'm going to play 80-20. I'm going to take 80% of my book. I'm going to find a really nice home for it. I'm going to keep 20% of my business. I'm going to work one day a week serving these groups, and I'll probably make more money when I do that than I made having my entire firm. And I have no risk. And I like what I do. It keeps me involved. I will tell you that, in fact, I'm going through this with a client right now in this industry, is that when you leave the business, you're going to have seller's remorse. And that's true across all industries, not just the wealth management business. The only person I've ever met who didn't have seller's remorse from selling the business, including me, was my father. And the only reason he didn't have seller's remorse was because he was mourning. My mother had died and he decided he had to leave the business at that time. So he didn't have seller's remorse, but he was mourning.
0: Yeah. So. Well, so 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 two things pop to mind. One, Julie, that sounds like something that you could that it would be interesting to talk with you about the implications of that on absolute engagement, right? It's like, you know, on the one hand you're talking about gradually focusing your business on that thing that motivates you and inspires you but it would be interesting to, to look at a you know a separate direction of saying instead of focusing it gradually just sell 80% of it off and keep the 20% that that you know kicks you out of bed in the morning I but the, sometimes um,
2: that's the right way right it depends on the person yeah, too yeah. and and their right. own sort of internal things that are going on
0: But but the other yeah. thing I'll I'll say is that you know Josh that the um yeah, that this crazy succession strategy that most wealth advisors go through, I think, is a function of that, the uh, the you know, or the, or the dysfunction of the business model that that you know, it, and what we see with like the the bigger firms that are acquiring other firms is that they go from evaluation of two x to evaluation of six x, and um, and and the people who run those businesses because they're running them like businesses and not like practices, you know, have have a lot fewer problems, in terms of building equity, succession planning, you know, those kinds of things because it's not all about them,
1: right? Does that make sense? absolutely. I mean, one of the five things you need to do if you want to create a sustainable business, and by the way, a sustainable business is a business somebody else would want to own. That's sort of my definition of it. And one of the five things you need to do is make yourself operationally irrelevant. It's the most difficult thing to do in the wealth management business. It can be done. It's just really difficult.
2: Josh, you've referred to your, your the, the five things. Could you just give us a quick list of those those five now?
1: Yeah, sure. The first, the first thing is, and this is where you need to start, and most people resist this, is on values and mission. You need to take your personal values. First, you have to know what your personal values are, and then you need to morph those personal values into business values. A values-based business knows what they're doing. A biz- all businesses have values You either explicitly said or implicitly run. And I think it's much better to do explicitly read. From the values, you create a mission statement. And a mission statement has to be 10 words or less and can be answered with a yes or a no. So for example, when Ask Josh Patrick, my mission is to help successful businesses become personally and economically sustainable. In stage two planning is to help our clients have a better life. Now, those are not radical statements. But it gets something up for me in the reason I'm either doing it or I'm not doing it. And if I'm not doing it, then you should fire me. If I am doing it, you should stay with me. That's number one. Number two is you want to become operationally irrelevant. And what that means is you want to make sure that you're not involved in the day-to-day operations of the business. Number three is you want to have a recurring revenue source. And in the wealth management world, that's the strongest piece of this business is that we have the best recurring revenue model I've ever seen in any business. Whether we have contracts or we don't have contracts, clients stay with us for a long period of time. And if we're working on an assets under management model, we have a recurring revenue every year. And because the stock market has generally gone on forever, we get a price increase with doing nothing which is unbelievable. The fourth thing you need to do is you need to systematize your business. Now, as owners of businesses, we generally hate systems, but our people love them because they want to know what they need to do to be successful and to do their job well. And without systems, there's no way for people to know what they're supposed to be doing. I'm a big W. Edwards Deming fan, which is, he's a father of quality control or lean manufacturing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we've used, I've been using his stuff for over 35 years now, and he will tell you that systems are the breakfast of champions. Without it, you can have a great business. And the final thing is your business has to make enough money to be successful. Most businesses in the United States are not profitable enough to be sustainable. They provide a nice lifestyle for the owner. But if you can't go past that, your business is not saleable nobody's going to really own it. So there's four pieces of profitability. There's having a good lifestyle for the owner of the business. There's having the ability to put away an emergency fund with six months to a year's worth of operating expenses. Bill Gates always wanted two years put aside. The third thing is to have enough money for growth because no bank is going to finance 100% of your growth. And the fourth thing is to have enough money being made so you can save money for retirement because your business is not going to get you there all by itself. So if you do those five things, and it's really pretty simple, you've done what it takes to create an economically and personally sustainable business that somebody would want to own, which I call sale-ready even if you don't want to sell.
2: And so when you look at those things, and I don't know if you can draw a, an immediate connection, but you know, we're talking about becoming referable here. You know, what components of that, if not the entire process, do you think contributes to helping advisors become more referable?
1: Well, I think becoming referable is becoming uh, very competent in what you do. You know, those five things really don't talk about excellence, but I think excellence in business is table stakes. If you're not really good at what your business does, your business won't exist for a long, you know, a long period of time. A lot of people think that the purpose of a business is to make money. I'm, I live in the Peter Drucker school. The purpose of a business is to create a customer and you can't create a customer unless you have a really good product that you sell. So,
0: so Josh, everybody says that they're really good at what they do. You know, how how do you, if you wanted to get people talking about you, how how would you go beyond that and 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 um, be more persuasive about it?
1: Well, you have to be able to uh, exhibit your expertise. You know, in the way you can do that, you can do that through writing, you can do it through videos, you can do it through podcasting, you can do it through uh, running seminars. But there, you have to be, I believe in this industry that if you're going to exhibit your expertise, you have to become a thought leader. And becoming a thought leader takes some time and takes some effort. You know, this is, you know, in the vending business, we would bring our food in, we would sample it, and we would take people on tours and show them what we did, and we would point out the differences that we had. We had some guarantees that nobody else in the industry would do. And so it made it pretty easy. You know, we would give people a free day of coffee if we ever ran out of 12 items that we promised to have in stock 100% of the time. Now, as it turns out, this was a really easy thing for us to guarantee because what we realized is 90% of our sales came from those 12 items. <laughs> and by the way, it only took me 15 years to figure that out. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> I wouldn't accuse myself of being a fast learner, <laughs> um, but when we finally did figure it out, you know, we would put three rows of Snickers in the vending machine and take away the Juju bees. Sure, you know, and frankly, you know, Snickers were, believe it or not, was forty percent of our candy sales. Interesting. So, why would we ever want to be without Snickers? Right. Now what right. happened was, and this is one of these byproducts you get from doing this stuff when you go for excellence, we had a byproduct, was an internal value that nobody ever knew about was before we did this, where we went to this t- guarantee not running out of stuff, our average service every time a guy opened the door on the vending machine was 40 dollars on, on a snack machine. After we did it, it went up to 120 dollars. Now, for productivity purposes, that was incredible. (laughs) That was a byproduct that came out of saying, oh, here's a guarantee we can... Everybody else in the industry thought I was completely nuts. But it was something that we had figured out how to do. And we only ever had one day we gave away a free day of coffee. (laughs) So it's the same thing thing in this industry, is you have to say, you know, how can you create... You know, it's pretty easy for me... If I have a one-on-one conversation with a private business owner, in less than 10 minutes, I can show them that I really know what I'm talking about. When I work for the large insurance company, they would say to me, oh, just try to get a 15-minute conversation. I look at them like I was crazy. and say, are you kidding? I can't get out of there in less than an hour. (laughs) And the reason was why I got all that time was I brought value to the conversation. You know, it's a great sales book. I don't know if you guys have read it called The Challenger Sale. And the author really talks about the way I've always sold is that the best salespeople are not relationship builders. They're challengers. They challenge their customers to think differently and they have a solution for the problem once they've done that.
0: Oh, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, and Josh, I hate to cut you off there, but we are, we are at our time. <clears throat> um, you know, we, you and I have spoken at length before. I know you've talked with Julie, and I could just go on all day with you because, you know, the, there's so much great stuff that you have. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on today. If people want to find out more about uh, Ask Josh Patrick and, um, you know, if, if they wanted to engage you because I know you specialize in the wealth management field, where, where can they find you and, um, and how can they get, get a hold of your stuff?
1: Um, the easiest place to find me is you can send me an email at jpatrick at askjoshpatrick. Uh, We have two websites. Our consulting website is www.askjoshpatrick.com. Our wealth management site is www.stage2planning.com, and the two is the number two. And if somebody's interested in getting my one-hour audio CD, which is free, all they have to do is take out their smartphone and text the word SUSTAINABLE to 44222. Or go to ask Josh Patrick and just click on the big maroon button on the home page and you can give us your mailing address and I'll mail out that C D to you.
0: And we will also put all those connections in the uh, in the show notes so that when if if you're listening to this and, and you've and you missed it or you're driving and you can't write it down, just come back to becoming com and we'll have all of those links in there in there for you. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been it's been great to talk to you as always and some great information for for advisors, and I hope we get to talk with you again real soon.
1: Thanks so much, I really appreciate the opportunity.
2: Hi, it's Julie again. It was great to have you with us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report three referral myths that limit your growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. Thanks so much for joining us.